Okay. Uh, everybody, welcome back. And uh, like uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, you know during the uh, the uh, time that I have not said a shir, last week I didn't say one, we have, of course, been visited by an unbelievable tragedy, and that is the death, the patira, the passing of a person that we really cannot comprehend in who he really was, uh, Reb Chaim Kanievsky. <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about him tonight. But my point or my perspective is very different than other people. You know, you read, there's obviously a lot of the papers came out, the Jewish papers, you know, uh, whatever, they came out, you know, with special sections in terms of who he was and his greatness, his tremendous encyclopedic knowledge and uh, his uh, character traits. I mean, in many ways, he was an extraordinary person. So that's what they dwelt on. But I want to take a different direction because, you know, after a while, you know, okay, we read about this and so on, you know. But I want to uh, uh, come in from a different direction. And that direction is the divine plan. And to try to see what this means based on what the Rabbani Shalom, what God wants to achieve. So as such, uh, I'm going to uh, ask certain questions, which I'm going to try to answer, and then to interpret what, as far as I see, what this means, you know, which is really, will give us a glimpse. And then I, I want to speak about afterwards, you know, what can we do? Can we in any way emulate? And that depends on why he became so great. Is it possible to take some of the elements of what he had and maybe incorporate them in ourselves? Not that we can be, we, obviously we can't become him, you know, or certainly reach anywhere at the level of his, you know, greatness. But it would be interesting to know what are the ingredients that he had that, that made him so great. So I'm going to try to, you know, talk about all of this you know, in uh, this evening's share. <clears throat> Good. So I'm going to start, really, I, you know, I, I've read, obviously, a lot of the stuff that the, um, the, the uh, papers have come out with, but there was one story about, uh, concerning Reb Chaim uh, that I want to uh, read and mention because of that, will form the basis of the interpretation that I want to give. So I'm going to read. It's not long, but it's, uh, I'm going to read what, um, uh, what the, uh, a particular story about Rav Chaim Kanievsky. <clears throat> so here it goes. Uh, Rav Yaakov Yitzchok Ruderman Zatzal, uh, the longtime Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva's Nei Yisroh, was a Goyen Nifla, which he was. The man was a phenomenal Talmud Chochem. He was what's called a Bucky. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of Bavli, probably Yushalmi, 
tremendous person. And if I remember correctly, uh, the yeshiva that he was in Europe was Slabotka. But in any case, so this story happened with Rav Ruderman. Um, so the article continues, his erudition in learning made him one of the most venerated sages of the past generation, which is true. Uh, he was Rosh Shiva, as it says, of Baltimore, near Israel. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he was, like I said, he was for there for many, many years. And, um, and then it says he taught Talmudim from across the globe for a span of over 60 years. <clears throat> now, nearly 40 years ago, he traveled to Eretz Israel. And it says here that it was a treasure trip for the Rosh Hashiva, Rav Ruderman, uh, which, who, and he didn't travel there often. So this happened about 40 years ago. Um, so that's probably, it sounds like it happened, um, uh, let's see, 40 years ago, maybe in, 19, uh, in 1980. That's when it happened. <clears throat> anyway, so it says here, you know, while he was there, he had the opportunity to meet with some of the greatest Torah giants of the time in Eretz Israel. Now, it continues that although there were matters of the klal, means the community, that needed to be attended to, right, um, there was nothing that, uh, there was uh, nothing that gave the Rosh Hashiva more joy than speaking about a Torah topic. Even though he obviously had to speak about other topics with other gedolim, uh, about issues that concern America. <clears throat> now, after he returned from his journey, the article continues, his Talmudim were anxious to hear about his trip. So uh, he spoke glowingly about the great and severe Israel and how he was Zulcha to Davin in some of the Mekrimus Gedoshim. He spoke about that. But then the Talmudim pressed him further and they asked him what was the highlight of the trip uh, that he could point to. So it says a big smile spread across Rav Wurman's face. So he said, actually, there were so many beautiful things about Eretz Israel that it's difficult to exactly say what the best part was. But if I had to, I would say uh, that it was the fact that I was Zulcha, means I merited, to buy a mantle. A mantle is a cover for Sefer Torah. You know, when you see the, they do Hagbo on the Sefer Torah, right? And then they roll it back, and then they put on this cover. It's called a mantle, uh, you know, a coat, whatever. So the Talmidim, when he, when he said that, looked at him at one another in surprise. They, they, I mean, they knew that it was a great schus to buy a mantle, means a cover for a Sefer Torah. But that was something that the Rebbe could have done in America. Why was that such a highlight? That was their question. <clears throat> so once more, Rav Ruderman smiled. And here begins what I want to talk about. You misunderstood me, he said. I met a younger man. A younger man means a, a young man, right? Who had an outstanding reputation as a Talmud Chochem. And I wanted to meet him. So as I spoke to him in learning, I realized that I was speaking to a man who knew, who mamish knew 
kol hatur kulo. And what that means emphatically is I realized I was speaking to a person, a man, a young man, a young, a young person, who mamish, mamish means literally, not figuratively, but literally knew the entire Torah, all of it. Now, in the middle, so then he continues, in the middle of our meeting, I noticed that his kapota, means his coat or jacket, that it was torn and worn out. So I asked him if I could buy him a new one. So he sort of like shrugged it off. Nah, you don't have to. And then, but I persisted. And finally, I was to do it. He said, okay. If you want to buy me a coat, you know, because mine has obviously, it's pretty old and worn and all that. So he said, he looked around at the Tamidim, Ravurman looked around at the Tamidim, who were hanging on his every word. So he said, Bochrim means Tamidim, students. Do you now understand? I was zuchet to buy a kapota, right? A mantle for a lebediger sefatura, for a living sefatura. This was the highlight of his journey, you see? And the Bochrim were amazed that uh, this brought Rav Ruderman such incredible joy that he was able to buy a kapota, you know, a, uh, not a coat, but a jacket, sort of, for somebody that he considered a living sefatera. You see? Now, so the, the article continues. Today we can appreciate this story even more as the Rosh Hashiva revealed the name of the younger man at the time. What was his name? Rav Chaim Kanievsky. That is a remarkable story. First of all, it shows who he was 40 years ago. So he must have been probably about 50 years old, right? If he's 94 when he passed away, take away at least 40 years. So we're looking at somebody that was probably around 50. So Rav Rudiman, who himself was a phenomenal Talmud Chacham, recognized that Rav Chaim Kanievsky knew Mamish, literally, the entire Torah, which is astounding. I mean, actually, maybe you could say, you know, we know that because, you know, if anybody asks him anything, he will answer. So we say, wow, he has this encyclopedic, uh, you know, uh, storehouse of information. But Rav Ruderman also probably knew Kulterikula. You know, I'm not comparing them, obviously. So if he says that, then obviously it's true. You know, because one can recognize the other. So what we see from this is that at the age of 50, he was testified as knowing the entire Torah. What does that mean? In the two points I want to dwell on. One, that this is what he knew when he was 50 years old. Could you believe this? And the second thing is Rav Rudiman called him a Lebediger Sefatura. What is a Lebediger Sefatura is? That if Torah had to be personified in a human form, it would look like Rav Chaim Kanievsky. That's what he's saying. And therefore, he's a living Sefatura. Torah in the form of a human 
or the greatest amount, basically, that you could know, you know, uh, was Rav uh, Chaim Kanievsky. This is what he seemed to be saying, you see. In any case, what I want to find out is what does that mean? Let's, let's be honest about Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Who was he, at least what we understand, right? One, if you take a look at his birth, his childhood, his life that he grew up, he was groomed for greatness. I mean, think about this. His father is the stipler Goin, who himself was one of the Gedoli Hador, one of the greatest men of his generation, right? Who himself is, knows probably Kolotar Kula. That's his father, right? Not only that, his mother is the sister of the Chazoinish. And the Chazoinish himself knew Kolotar Kula. So therefore the Chazoinish is his uncle. It's his mother's brother. So that's his uncle, right? Not only that, but his father learned with him Shas. And he finished Shas with him before his Bar Mitzvah. I mean, could you believe having a teacher like that? Where you learn Shas with one of the people who are Gedoli Hador, and you do it before you're 13? Obviously, it's phenomenal. Not only that, that is the, uh, the uh, sort of the uh, personal uh, history of Rav Chaim uh, Kanievsky. But he himself, he had a photographic memory. I mean, could you imagine what that will give you, what an edge that will give you? Which means he basically never forgot anything. But what was really astounding about him was his ability to focus. You know, it's interesting. You know, you can have a great head, memory, you can have great teachers and so on. But how many guys can sit all day long over a Gemara, which itself is very difficult to go through the Gemara and to understand it? Most people, they'll learn for an hour or two, and then they have to take a break. And even the whole day, they, most people don't learn the whole day. Yet he was able to learn 24-7, if you can believe that. His ability to focus and concentrate was extraordinary. So if you combine all this, how could he not be great? Of course it would require his input. Obviously, he has free will. He doesn't have to do it. I'm sure there were many great people who had tremendous abilities, and they didn't become anything near this. So, of course, he gets the credit because he worked on himself and he did it. But he worked on himself with a set of skills and life circumstances in which he had everything he needed to become unbelievably great, you see. Now, there's something else that a person needs, distractions. That's what, in many times, takes away the potential of people. You know, life interferes, you know, and therefore, you know, we're talking about, you know, marriage, we're talking about parnasa, a livelihood, you know, we're talking about all kinds of things that are constantly interfering. So what did the Rav Hashem do? And this is all Hashgacha. He married the daughter of Rav, uh, you know, uh, El Yashiv, who himself was, the, was one of the G'doy Le'ador. 
He certainly was the Poisicador. I mean, the man was phenomenal. You see, and he lived to 102, right? And he learned the same thing 24-7. I mean, Rav Yashu used to get up at 2 a.m. and learn as much as he could the entire day. You see? And Rav Yashiv had also a tremendous amount of head starts. His, his, his grandfather was the Leshem, probably the greatest Makubal in, in the, in, at that time and so on. Uh, he wrote the Leshem Shvavachlama and so on. Uh, so he gives him his daughter, Basheva, right, to Rav Chaim Kanievsky. So therefore she took care of everything. She would do, she did the, the finances, the cooking, you name it. So he never had distractions unless he chose to, which he did. You know, they say he was a very good father, a very good father for his kids. He spent a lot of time with them. He taught each one of them the whole shots before they were bar mitzvah. Obviously, he took a lot of time and so on, but that was his own choosing. But basically, the, the whole management of the household was his wife. So we're looking at a guy that is being groomed for greatness. And he used out the opportunity to become the Godlador. You know, so the question that I want to ask, I mean, this, if you analyze it and you're honest with it, it's say, well, look, the, I mean, the man's being groomed for this. You know, of course he gets the credit because he did it. But wow, you see. So my question is, Clearly, this was orchestrated by God. No question about that. That his parents, his uncle, uh, his birth, his head, his personality. I mean, it's, it's like so that if he would put in the time, he would become the God Lador. With this phenomenal amount of scholarship and accomplishment and so on. The question is, is there a reason why the Rabbanisham did it? Now, of course, we can never really, we don't really know why God does anything. Because uh, most of the plan of the world, the whole concept of tikkun and so on, is really concealed from us. But is there any way that we can have some kind of a glimpse into why did God want this person to be the God Lador with an extraordinary grasp of like Rav Ruderman said, Mamish Kola Terakula. And I would like to try to answer that. So that is the first question that I would like to ask. Second question I would like to ask, and by the way, if you want to see just the, some of the concepts of greatness and the fact that he had this incredible, what's called Siaita Dishmaya. Siaita Dishmaya, you have to have to become successful in Torah. Siyaita Deshmai means divine assistance to learn and to understand the Torah. It's all given by God once you put in the effort. You know, so I'll just say there's one story which clearly demonstrates the unbelievable Siyaita Deshmaya that he had. And there are many stories that we know of, obviously, you know, story of Rufus and Yeshuas and so on, you know, uh, people had miraculous salvation and so on. But there's the famous story of the grasshopper. And to me, that story is, uh, is incredible because there's no way to explain it. You know, he was once, uh, he was writing a safer 
on grasshoppers because there's a certain amount of grasshoppers that are kosher. And he didn't have that, a grasp of the anatomy of the grasshopper. So he was thinking about it because he had to know, you know, some of the anatomy in order for him to identify which ones were kosher. Now, grasshoppers are not common in Israel. And then his, he, had, he was in his room, and all of a sudden, the window was open, and in flew a grasshopper. Just actually flew into and landed on the table in front of him. And he's looking at it. Could you believe this? So while it was there, this is what the story goes, he sort of like picked it up to look at it, to study its anatomy, you know, the legs and so on, the body, you know. And then he saw what it was, and he puts it down. And after he put it down, uh, the grasshopper, of course, flew away, or whatever he did, right? But then Rabbi Chaim realized that there's certain questions that he had even on what he saw. So what he really had to see was the grasshopper again. So, believe it or not, the grasshopper came back, landed on his table, and he's exa- again examining the grasshopper. And then the grasshopper, you know, once he finished, flew away, whatever. I mean, could you believe this? I mean, what are the odds that a grasshopper made itself available so Rab Chaim could sit and study it and write a sefer on the halachas of grasshopper. They told the story over to Rav Yashiv, who himself was probably, the, he was certainly the Pesikador, the greatest uh, decisor of halachas in the entire world after Rabbi Yashiv Feinstein. You see, and he was amazed because he said, you hear stories like this about the Rishonim, you know, the Rambam, the Ramban, and so on. You don't hear this kind of story about present-day people. So he was absolutely amazed, you know. And they say that there was this Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth, also a tremendous going, who was the chief rabbi of, uh, in Belgium, Brussels, uh, not Brussels, uh, Antwerp. <clears throat> and he once visited Rabbi Chaim, and he asked him, is this story true? So Rabbi Chaim looks at him and says, yes. The table that we're both sitting at is exactly where the grasshopper landed. Well, what does that tell you? He talking about a sighted dishmaya, a divine assistance to know Torah. That is extraordinary. It's unheard of. So with all this extraordinary sighted dishmaya, divine assistance, you know, it just shows you that he was aided and abetted by God to become what he was, you see. So that, that, that's the, so that story, you know, illustrates really in many ways, you know, the uh, future of this person. So the next question I want to ask is, there's something very unusual here, that not only was he was the God Hador, the greatest man in the generation, but if you really think about it, he's the last God Hador, you know, a God Lador is the greatest man in the generation, usually in terms of scholarship, you see. But there's two types of God Lador. There's what's called an absolute God Lador, and then there's a relative God Lador. 
Rav Chaim Kanievsky was an absolute Godel Hador. You see, he could have been the Godel Hador in many generations before. So that's absolute. He is the Tzura. You see, he is the picture of a true Godel Hador. But most Gedolei Hador are not really Gedolei Hador. I mean, they have a great deal of scholarship. But relative to what is in that generation, they are the greatest. But it's a relative Godel Hador. The amazing thing about Rav Chaim is that he was an absolute Godel Hador, number one. But the second thing is that there's nobody after him. Nobody has, can even remotely touch, touch him in what he knew. His abilities in learning was extraordinary, absolutely outstanding. So he left no person after him that could take on. And usually what the Bershom does is what? He always, when he takes one tzaddik away, so there's somebody that can follow him. Because the Bershom doesn't want to leave the Jewish people as Yisoyimim. You find that even in the Gemara. When somebody passed away, the Gemara says, then somebody else was born to take over, you see. So my question is that Rav Chaim Kanievsky is the last God Hador in an absolute sense. So then who's going to take over Rav Chaim's role? So that is the, uh, uh, the, the, the second question that I have. Then the third question is, he died on Shushan Purim. But Shushan Purim in Eretz Yisrael, we don't really celebrate it here, especially in Yerushalayim. You know, Shushan Purim is celebrated in Yerushalayim and even in other places in Israel, you see. So is there a reason why he died on Shushan Purim? What meaning does that have? Or is that part of the understanding of why he passed away? That is my question. You see, so I have so I have these questions about his uh, demise, and I'm going to try to answer it with what I view as a very important reason or understanding of what is going on. Very important idea. Now he was an unusual person because many people considered him the father of Jews. I mean, everybody looked to him as the absolute authority of Torah. He knew the source of everything. You know, his uh, uh, grasp of halachas was extraordinary, like I say. He, you know, he, had, he was a Poisik, the greatest of the Poiskim today. But it's more than that. Somehow people felt that, you know, as long as he's alive, we're protected because of his prayers. So, you know, and there's so, many, there's so much anti-Semitism, and then you have the era of Rav in Israel trying to destroy Judaism. Somehow, you know, people felt that as long as he's alive, he's our, you know, our, I hate to use the word, knight in shining armor, so to speak. He's our protector, you see? So people had that. Not only that, thousands of people filed past him. And so many got Yeshua's salvations, you know, tremendous miracles and so on. So he was, he was just incredible in so many different ways. So his demise, his patira, shocked everybody. Because it's not just the loss of this person, 
but it's the loss of what he provided the Jewish people, which itself is uh, tremendous. You don't have that usually. Many times you have people who are great, but they're not what he was. He was like a father to the Jewish people. You have other Gedolim, but they don't have that role. He had that role. So then the question is, what does all this mean? Okay. In order to answer these questions, you have to know the certain information. So, the first piece of information that I'm going to tell you is Purim. He died on Shushan Purim, an hour and a half or whatever, two hours before Shabbos. So the question is, can we see depth and meaning in that? And I believe yes. The question that you have to ask yourself is, why are there two days of Purim? You know, if you have a war, and that war is taking place in different cities, so what you do, and then you're victorious, so then you pick a day, obviously the last battle, that happens in a city or wherever, and that day becomes the, you know, like what they say, the victory day, the celebration, right? But the celebration is not in two parts. Each city doesn't have its day of celebration. You pick one day of celebration, right? For the, uh, the because you won the, the 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 war and so on, and that becomes true of all the cities that were engaged in this war. So then the question is, why are there two days? There's the fourteenth of right of Adar, right? Because that's when the Jewish people, uh, you know, killed all the people that wanted to kill them, and they were spread out all over Persia, and then there's Shushan Purim, right? Where, where they kill the people in Shushan. You see? So, fine. So, what Chazal should have made is one day. Shushan Purim, because that was the last day of the war. All right, it happened in the capital. Last day of the war. Okay, so that becomes Purim. Why are there two days? It's a very interesting question. And it, it almost feels as if there are two separate days. You see? As if there are two Purims even though halakhically they're similar and same, but you almost feel like they're two days. And each city celebrates it or commemorates it on a day, either on the 15th, which happened on Shushan Purim, or in the other cities. The answer, I think, I've never seen anybody answer this, but I think the answer is this. Because the truth is, Purim has two miracles, not one. And each miracle is celebrated or commemorated by each day. What does that mean? You know, here's what it goes. If God gives you the ability to destroy your enemy, right? Fine. But there are two aspects to an enemy. One is the branches of the enemy. You know, all the assistance you know, and the soldiers of the enemy. So imagine you're victorious that you kill all the, you know, the troops and the soldiers of the enemy. That's great. But the problem is that the headquarters, the roots of evil still exist. The headquarters. So the second incredible miracle is to take out the headquarters. You see? It wasn't enough in Germany during World War II, you know, to kill all the Nazis 
and bomb the different cities and so on. You know, you had to bomb Berlin or wherever the headquarters was. And that's what happened in Purim. Purim, the Xer of Purim was so great that God allowed the Jews not only to win against their enemies, right? All the soldiers and the legions that were loyal to Haman. But he allowed the Jews to kill Haman and his sons. You see, and that happened, <clears throat> of course, you know, uh, and that's Shushan Purim. Because Shushan is the city of the headquarters of evil. Therefore, Chazal realized that there are two miracles that God did for the Jews. The first miracle is that he allowed the Jews to wipe out the enemy. And the second miracle is that he allowed the Jews to destroy the headquarters. And Shushan, because that's where Homan and his children lived, and that's obviously where his major influence was, and so on, he allowed the Jews to kill them also. So therefore, you have both. You have Yudalad Ador, which is, commemorates the destruction of the Amalekis or those who, you know, who, uh, uh, were part of that uh, uh, message, part of that mission. And he also allowed the Jews to kill all the people in their headquarters, the Haman lovers or whatever, and so on, you know, in, in uh, Shushan itself. That's why we have to. And in many ways, that's what allows us to understand why he died in Shushan. And I will continue in the elaboration. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the next thing you have to know, I'm not tying it yet, but the next thing you have to know is something which the Ram- Ramchal talks about in the Maimah Hagula. The, uh, the Ramchal wrote the Maimah Hagula, which is an essay on redemption when he was 23 years old, which is astounding. And it's a book about the fundamental concepts of redemption, the stages and so on. Uh, And here's what he writes, which is very important. Here's what he says. That in the beginning of time, so to speak, you know, when the Jews left Egypt, you know, then the divine energy of the spheres would come down in a tremendous amount of awe. And Ramchal calls it the Shah, the gate, the gateway. So there was a tremendous opening that allowed this divine energy of the spheres to come down, especially with the Beis Hamikdash. So that first Beis Hamikdash was able to be the resident of the Shrina, but at an unbelievable level of holiness. But when the Beis Hamikdash, so that's called the the, 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 the or the gateway, you see. Now, when the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, however, then God closed the gate, because that's part of the Oynish, the punishment to the Jewish people. But wait a minute. If you close the gate, which means you do not allow the flow of what's called the Shefa, the, the energies of the spheres, if you stop the flow, you inhibit the flow, then the entire creation is destroyed. Because there has to be a continuous, persistent flow 
of divine energy, divine ore that comes down to creation in order for it to exist. So if you shut the gates, then that's the end of the universe. It's the end of all creation. So what God did is he shut the gate, but before he closed it fully, where he would shut off all the energy, he opened windows, which means he made holes in a spiritual sense in different areas. So there is some energy coming down, but it's coming down not in this wide expanse with enormous quantity, but it's coming down in much smaller, uh, you know, commas, um, much smaller quantity. But uh, so he uses the example of windows. So it comes down in different windows, and it's much smaller, the flow. And that's the energy that we have because of the sins. And that really, in many ways, is the concept of golos, where the energy comes down in windows as opposed to an open gate, you see. And like I say, um, this continues. As the Jews sin, the windows shut. But not totally. The windows begin to lower, you see. It's almost like you have a house, right? And you have windows. And the windows are painted black, but they're open. And as time goes on, they, the windows begin to shut. And if they shut entirely, then there's no more light that goes into the house, you see. So as the gullus proceeds and gets worse, as the sins of the Jews get worse, then the windows keep going down, you see, and, be, and, and begin going further and further down. Now, if they shut completely, then the entire Bria vanishes. So what God does is, ultimately, as the sins of the Jews increase, right, then they, they keep shutting down. And, like I said, if they shut down totally, the creation dissolves. So what happens is, they are going to shut down again, or rather, they are going to diminish the amount of ore coming in to the, uh, the, 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 uh, the world. And, but ultimately, it can never shut totally. It will leave a small slit. Let's say a slit that's a nanometer wide. And that slit is able to sustain the existence of the entire creation. You see. And this is what the Golis is. As time goes on, and the Jews sin more and more, then the windows begin to close, 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 until they're about to close. It's only one nanometer left. But before they close totally, then immediately the gate opens and the energy of the spheres comes through the gate with unbelievable volume. That is the Geula, you see. So the Ramchal uses this analogy. Now, what's important to know is as the windows close, that is the darkness. It gets darker and darker and darker. That's a very important concept, you see.
So we now understand the concept of the gateway and the windows, and the golis is all about the windows closing slowly, diminishing the divine or the spiritual energy of the spheres, you see, and that produces tremendous, of, of, tremendous void, absence of spirituality, ruchnius, and divine energy. And like I said, the geula, the redemption will be where the windows is going to shut, but right before it shuts and therefore the whole world will be destroyed, the gate opens, right? And all of a sudden, the, the divine energies pour out and that is the redemption, you see. Now, what we have to ask ourselves is the following. What does it mean that the, gate, that the windows shut? That is the question. Because what shut means is it gets darker. And what darkness is, is spirituality diminishes in an incredible level, you see. And this is very important, very necessary, because this reflects the sins of the Jews. So this is what happens. But can, can we understand what this means uh, from our standpoint? The diminishment of spirituality. Can we understand what it means? And I believe we can. When we say that darkness envelops, spiritual darkness, what it means is that the opposite of darkness is light. Light means Torah. That in some way, Torah, the ability to know the Torah, to master the Torah, right, diminishes severely. So darkness means the diminishment of scholarship, the diminishment of Torah, the diminishment of people that will know the Torah, you see. That's what darkness means. <clears throat> we see that in today's generation. That, how do we see it? Because there are three things that have now happened. And like I say, the concept of darkness means the diminishment of Torah scholarship. That people do not know their Torah. That's what darkness is. Now, what's important to understand <clears throat> is this. That we actually see it. The diminishment of Torah to the Jewish people. <clears throat> in, fact, in fact, the Rosham even says that. Because there's a famous posuk that God promises that no matter what happens in the sense that no matter what the Jews do <clears throat> in terms of sinning the Torah will not be forgotten amongst the Jewish people <clears throat> the Torah will not be forgotten from his seed but the interesting thing about that is in order for that Pasek to be fulfilled, all you need is one Jew to know the Torah, and everybody else forgot it. If that's the case, right? So that Pasek, that verse, is fulfilled. That means if every Jew does not know the Torah, but only one does, then that is fulfilled. So is that what God is saying? When he says it won't be forgotten, that means it will 
you know, it's figuratively, it's really forgotten. But it won't be forgotten because one Jew knows the Torah. That's what it would mean. That is a prophetic statement. And that's the concept of the windows closing. You see. And this is all because of the Golas, the the exile, and the sins of the Jews. Now, the well, basically, yes. Now, it's manifest today. Let's take a look. There's approximately 15 million Jews in the world today, which I've spoken about extensively. 15 million Jews. 12 million of them have nothing to do with the Torah. They're gone. There's no Shemir Shabbos. They do not observe the Sabbath. They do not eat kosher. There's no mikveh, and so on. They're gone. We know that. It's an unbelievable tragedy that 12 million of 15 million are gone. So that's your first level of the windows. That shows you how far the windows are closed and how much Torah has been diminished. The, the second level of diminishment of Torah or the light, because that's the windows closing, is the fact that even people who learn Torah, right, there are levels of learning. You see, uh, for instance, I'll give you an example, you know. For instance, um, just take Dafyomi, for instance, which is really, it's, a, it's very interesting. But the problem with Dafyomi is that a person can learn and not know, you see, because how could you know anything if you do a blot a day? So, therefore, what is happening today is that people who do learn, they don't know. They don't have mastery. And we know that what God wants, it says, Vishinantam Luvanecho, right? And you will diligently teach them to your children. So, the Gemara says, what does that mean? It means that, that the level of teaching, because it doesn't say really maditem livonecho, you should teach them to your children. It says vishinantem livonecho in Kriyashma. And the Gemara says what that means is that you, you have to teach them where they achieve a level of michudodem beficho. That means that they, if you ask them any question, they will spit out the answer. That is a level not only of learning, but of mastery, command. And people don't have that command anymore. Alavai, they should learn. They don't have that mastery anymore. Yet that's what the Torah requires chinuch, education, to be of Klai Yisrael. You see. So that's the B'nai Torah. Right? These are the people who learn in Yeshiva. You know, it's, it's, it's a terrible state, I believe, that a guy can go to Yeshiva for 15, 20 years and hardly know anything. You see, he will have learned a lot, but what does he know? What can he repeat back to you in that sense? You see, so not only is 12 million Jews gone, but even a great deal of Bochum and Yeshiva or Kurlis or whatever, right? Uh, there could be a lot of learning but how much knowing is there, you see? Um, so that's a second level of darkness or the void of Torah. Then there's a third. And I believe this is where Rabchaim Chaim Kanievsky came in. Because that the level of 
darkness has gone to a, such an extent where nobody could become an absolute God Hador. In other words, the ability of somebody to achieve a mastery at the level of a Rab Chaim Kanievsky is gone. And that, to me, is the ultimate closing, almost, of the window, which is, uh, which is fascinating when you think about that. Uh, so look at what you have, the three levels. Level one is where 12 million people have nothing to do with the Torah. The level two is where people who learn in yeshiva or dafyomi, well, they, they, may, they learn a lot, but what is their mastery? There's no mechudot and b'ficho. You see, and that is a level of, of Torah learning that a person must have according to Kriyashma, Mishinantam Levanecho. And the third level is that they cannot exist anymore with that incredible mastery and command of Torah that Rab Chaim Kanievsky had. And that is why he's the last God Lador. Absolutely. That there's nobody that even has comes close to that parallel. So therefore, what we begin to understand is this. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> is that what the Bonsham did is he needed somebody to be a master of the oral law, to be a master of kolatonakula, in order that when the windows close, the level of the closing of the window will remove this person, and that's how much the windows have closed. Therefore, he allowed, or he actually created a Rabchan Kanievsky to be able to achieve that level of Torah, right? And to remove that from the world. And therefore, what that means is that the window is right at the point of closing, which has enormous repercussions for us. I mean, they say what his schedule was. Imagine every year he finished Kohatar Kula. You're talking about Bavli, the Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi. You talk about Mechilta, Sifro, Sifrei. You talk about the Tanakh. You talk about Tosefta. Then you talk about Rambam, right? Shuchnarach, Mishnah Brura. And I was very surprised to hear that he was also a book in Kisvi Ramchal. Yes, which tells me, uh, and, and then of course, Zoya. He did every Sefer that I just mentioned every year. Now, we, we, can, uh, we, we cannot even grasp how could you do that? I mean, the amount of time to learn through all this is staggering. Yet he was able to do it. And I believe that the Bosham created such a person, right, so that level three can be realized that there will be a tremendous darkness, void of Torah, and that this level of Torah can no longer be achieved. Why? Because the window is now at the level where one more drop will shut off the Shefa of the spheres. But before that happens, we know that cannot happen. Before that happens, the, the gates will open, and that's the beginning of the Geula, you see. And the reason why, so that's Rav Chaim, why he had this incredible Siyad Dishmaya to be who he was, to be the third level, you see. And the reason why he died in Shushampuram 
is because his death is Mises Tzaddik. We know that when a Tzaddik dies, it's a tremendous kapora for the Jewish people, you see, that helps the Jewish people survive. So his death is a tremendous kapora. And I believe what the Bosham decided is that rather than, rather than have him live and provide so much uh, sustenance to the Jewish people, the Rebbe needed the Kapora, and he needed not only the Kapora, the Misa, the death of Rabbi Chaim, but he needed to get to level three in order to usher in the end of the Golas and the Messianic era. So therefore, what we begin to understand something is very, in, very important, that we understand now why, oh, and therefore he died in Shushampuram, because Shushampuram is the eradication of the shurish of evil. And Rab Chaim, with his death, his Misa, was able to obliterate the shurish of evil, and that's the whole concept of Shushampuram, you see. So his death was so great as a kapora for Klai Yisrael that even the root of evil is eradicated. So therefore, what this tells me is that his death accelerated the, the Geula itself. And that's what the Bansham did. He accelerated the diminishment of Torah, which is the closing of the window, so that we can now, we are right next to the Geula itself, you see. Uh, so therefore, uh, so that says, you know, while you have such a person like that, in a, from a different standpoint, and also, you know, what does it mean for, for redemption, why Shushan Purim, and so on. So we see, therefore, in summary, there are two fundamental concepts, that his patira is a tremendous kapora for Klai Israel in order to go over the threshold to approach the Tikkun. And that's how great its kapora was. And the second thing is that with his death, level three, which is the actual windows almost closing, has also been realized. And therefore, the messianic process, the Geula, really can begin who knows how quick we are incredibly close I mean we take a look at what's going on in the world the depravity the abnormality you know we used to look at the world okay they made foolish moves and so on but we realize that the world for, the, for anybody who follows this the world is we cannot believe how moronic the world has become it's not only the depravity but it's a destruction of civilization it doesn't even make sense anymore. That's how crazy the world is, you know. And I'm not even talking about the zimo, the depravity, the, the immorality, you know, the LGBTQ, which itself is the reason why the marble happened. So we all feel that we have to be at the cusp of the redemption itself. So I believe, therefore, this, so therefore the revolution has decided that he wants to push over the threshold to bring the Gula and therefore to fulfill that concept that the window will be down literally at the end, you see. And therefore that is the Patira or Abchaim Kanievsky. 
you see. And that also is the Misa Sadiq as a Kapora that will also accelerate that. So therefore, I'm looking at this as a completely different, uh, in a completely different way, not only in terms of his personality, his greatness, his scholarship, his encyclopedic mastery of all the Torah, but Hashkafa-wise, this is what the darkness is. When the windows close, this is what the darkness is. A void in Torah. And we see it today. You know, people don't realize that. Like I said, there are 12 million Jews that have nothing to do with the Torah. And then there are many people who learn in Yeshiva, there's Dafyomi, where there is true, there's a lot of learning going on. But there's no Vishinantam Ruvanecho, which is really the which is really the criteria for what God wants in terms of what a Jew should what the level of Jewish scholarship should be and you don't have that in, in, in hardly anywhere and then you had the third level where even the ability to master Torah at an unbelievable level is now gone and that's why Reb Chaim did not leave over anybody else because I believe the window is so shut, almost, right? It's got only a nanometer left. That to reach the level of Rav Chaim is now impossible. You see, uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the uh, light, the amount of light coming down. Therefore, as far as I'm concerned, we have to be literally at the cusp of the redemption itself. And that's where we stand, you know. I want to also mention something. What were the major ingredients that Rab Chaim had? Because it's valuable for us to know that we maybe not that we could become like him at all, but it at least is the proper path to achieve greatness in Torah. You see. So the first thing is he had, and I'll give you, uh, you know, a whole bunch of them. One is that. He had tremendous commitment. He made a commitment. It wasn't incidental that he happened to want to learn. He made a commitment that he wants to know Kola Terakula. He wants, it, it was a designed plan. So that tells us, if you want to become great in Torah, this isn't incidental. You need to make a commitment that this is what you want to be. <clears throat> you know, I remember they once, I once uh, read that they asked Rab Chaim Kanievsky, how do you remember everything? So you know what he said? He didn't say because I have a great head or I have a great memory, <clears throat> right? Or because I'm a genius or, <clears throat> or I'm a great masmid. He didn't say any of that. Do you know what he said? The reason why I remember everything, he answered in Yiddish, because I want to. In other words, this isn't incidental. He made a commitment. He wants to know. You see? And that's what he said. Because I want to. That is my goal. And therefore I know. Of course he was incredibly aided with an incredible memory. But the mental state to want to know is critical for that achievement that goal. The second thing uh, is that he had incredible ability to focus, 
to concentrate. Tremendous ability that he could stay with the Torah, the Gemara, whatever, for hours on end. And he didn't look to take a coffee break or whatever, you know, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. So he realized that the only way to reach that level is you must be an unbelievable masmid. There is no other word, or there is no other way. Uh, so that's number two. Number three, which you realize that, I don't know how many people realize that when they read about him, his method of learning. His method was not, in many ways, what happens. He wasn't into lumbus, as they say. He wasn't into pilpul or chidushay Torah in that sense. Uh, what he was in, into was called textual. You see, he was what's called a textualist. He knew that the real way to achieve unbelievable greatness <clears throat> is you must master the text. That is why his major focus was shas. Not to learn seven blood as man, a time, or to learn 50 blood a year or whatever, no. He realized you must master the basic text. So he mastered Bavli, Yushami, and so on. And as long as you master that, that will always form the file cabinet. It will form the framework of everything because you will have organized it in that way and everything will then be compartmentalized into Shas. So that was his method, you see? And automatically everything else will happen you'll realize all the lumbness and so on, all the depth and so on. Uh, but he wanted to... <coughs> but what he wanted to do is to have a complete mastery <clears throat> of the basic text. And that would be his framework, his file cabinet for everything. And then everything is like a hard drive everything then would be able to be sorted into that hard drive, into Shas. <clears throat> you see, and that's, and that's, I hold that that method is the method, and it's not only espoused by him. Many people say, you know, uh, you, you have to learn, you have to have a Seid and Bikiyas, which means Yediri Satura. It's a tremendous mistake uh, that many, that schools do not have a Seder well, that will teach you idea, knowledge, facts, and have you memorize it. You see, forget about not every. You, 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 the focus cannot be certainly initially of what's called lumdus. You know, rishonim, achronim, chidushim, and so on. No, the focus has to be to master the text itself, and that will become once you do that the real framework to retain everything, and then automatically your mind will be able to create tremendous chedushim because then you'll begin to see relationships because you see so much text that nobody sees. I mean, it's a long discussion about this, but his method was the correct method, uh, you see, and so on, you know. In fact, uh, many, I, 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 many times I say, I ask people, what's the difference between Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky and a regular Talmud Chacham. Now, the answer, obviously, is, well, we'll look at the difference in knowledge and so on. No. 
The real difference is a Talmud Chochem learns. Reb Chaim knows. That's a very important distinction. The reason why Reb Chaim Kanievsky, other than his natural talents and so on, was such an unbelievable godl, like I said, because he wanted to know, not just learn. Obviously, in order to know, you have to learn. But his goal was far more than just learning and creativity. He wanted to know in the in, in his hand, you know, everything. And he did. And the fourth idea, which is interesting, is distractions. We have unbelievable amount of distractions, you know, whether it be, I, I mean, I, I, you know, whether it be the internet or smartphones, or, or there, there, there's so much stuff that we do that, you know, that distracts us and removes us the focus and the concentration of learning. And he was able to, he made that decision. I don't want any of that. He, he, didn't even, he did not even own a phone. Forget about a smartphone or a computer or anything like that. He did not even own, own a phone in his home. Okay, you know, look, we don't have to go to that length. Uh, but the message is very clear. You know, you have to be able to deal with all the distractions that will destroy you. And, of course, he had tremendous help with his wife. His wife has tremendous amount of credit for what he was, you see. And I believe that, you know, she is clearly sharing his merit in Ganeiden and in Oilam Habo and so on. You know, what his wife did is outstanding, is that she took away a tremendous amount of home distractions that he would have had. But the main idea is to minimize the distractions because they will destroy your potential. Uh, you see. So that's it. Those are the ideas that I believe, you know, the essential ideas that made him so great. So it would be great, you know, when you think about it, if we would employ or think about these ideas, you know, commitment, focus, and to become a textualist, to focus on the text, certainly initially, to master the text itself, whether it be Mishnayis, whether it be Bavli, Yushami, and so on, get the text down clear, just simple. They say that when he used to give a Chabura, you know, everybody in the Chabura used to come out with, you know, real pilpul and, you know, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, give and take, chidushim. And they say that when he gave a Chabura in the Yeshiva Lamza, where he learned Petach Tikva, he would just exp- say it to Blat Gemara, but he would explain it beautifully. That's what he was into. He was into the text to understand it completely. You see, and then the rest will automatically flow in. The Chidushim, the Lamdas, the depth, and so on. And that's why he had Bavli and Shami at his fingertips, you see, because that was his focus, to know the text over and over with complete clarity. That's the secret, I believe, of his godless. In any case, uh, so these uh, are some of the ideas that I want to say, it's a different view, perspective of what the meaning is of his demise, his patira, his death, and what I believe that it has tremendously advanced, you know, our approach to the messianic 
redemption itself. So let us hope, clearly, I'm sure that he has now become what's called a Melitz Yoshev, because somebody who was so dedicated to the Jewish people, had so much love for the Jewish people while he lived, how could that possibly leave him after his death? You see, so I believe he's clearly up there pushing in some way, you know, for the merit that the Jewish people should see the Mashiach, you know, literally, hopefully, this year, which is a Shemitah year, we know, right? And the Gemara, we know, in Sanhedrin says that the Mashiach will come at the end of Shemitah, Mitzoy Shemitah. So, let's hope that this is the year. Thank you. Any questions? Very nice, this class. I like this. Well, I can't hear you. What? Say it louder. I, I cannot hear. Can you speak louder? It says it was a beautiful class. Yes, I hope I was able to impart the message very clearly. So, so what do we do now? Now that the protection is gone and we're missing a lot of, uh, you know, Torah learning in the world at the moment. Well, I will tell you something which I, uh, you remind me, you know. There was a problem with Reb Chaim doing what he did. Do you know what that is? This is interesting. It reminds the me problem of Esther HaMakah. Say that again, what? It reminded me of Esther when you were talking, how when she, was in the, when she was in the palace, the Jews thought, oh, we have one of us in the palace, she'll take care of us. Very but fair. But she invited Haman to the... Amy, Amy, that is brilliant. Excellent. Uh, here's the problem. I mean, and it's, not, it's not a real problem, but it is a problem. The problem is that everybody began to rely on Rab Chaim. Uh, you know? which automatically reduces their dependence on God. You see? And you're right. That's exactly. That's why they say Esther made a party for Haman and Achashverosh, because then, because like this, they will say, well, we got a, we got, we got a, a, a personal contact in the, in, in the White House, you know, in the, in the palace. So Esther purposely made it look like she was together with Achashverosh and Homan. Exactly. So the problem is, and it is a problem, that when you have a man like Reb Chaim, because Reb Chaim was a living Urim Vetumim, the man was phenomenal in terms of his ability to know what he could never have known. I mean, there are stories what he knew, you know, and he would say it, that he could not possibly have known. He was a, a fountain of Ruach HaKodesh. So the problem with that is that you're relying on Rab Chaim, you know. So maybe that will diminish your tshuva, you know, your prayer to God. Because in the end, it's not Rab Chaim Kanievsky. It's God that does everything. Uh, so I think part of the idea is that with Rab Chaim gone, right, who are you going to rely on? There is nobody to rely on. Only the Rabbanu Shalom. And that, I, I think, is certainly, although it's not the reason... I think it's one of the benefits that come when he's not here. 
because now there is nobody to rely on. You have to do tshuva, you have to pray to God, because He's the only one that can really help you, which is exactly what He did by Rab Chaim. Except by Rab Chaim, Rab Chaim Kanievsky was the intermediary for this. Fine. But everybody relied on the intermediary, so maybe that, re- that reduced, you know, their sincerity of doing tshuva, of praying to God for a refuah, a yeshua. So in that sense, that was a problem. You see. Question. He didn't teach people, he just studied himself? I, I, her question is, um, yeah. he didn't, he, uh, uh, Rab Chaim didn't teach people, or he just learned by himself all day? <coughs> what is interesting is that, you know, so in the, certainly for many years he learned by himself, but then he was approached to take a job as some kind of uh, uh, what's called a Shoilam Eshev in Yeshiva. So he asked his father, the stipler, going. And the stipler knew. He said, no, don't take anything. Your job is to sit and learn. Because the stipler understood that his son had such gifts that God clearly intended Rab Chaim to be the, the sort of like the face of the divine. So he rejected it. So he never took a job. He never took any responsibility, you see. He did once give a shir. He did give shurim, you know. But basically, it was all his own learning. He did have chavrusas, but it was all his own learning. He had no position, no responsibilities in that sense. Although he did allow himself to be, you know, the, 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 the principal head of organizations, of basically, which he certainly didn't, you know, do it and so on. But basically, he was, a, he was a self-made person that just sat and learned. That was his responsibility, which is what his father told him. You know? So Look, like I said, isn't there yeah. that, there's that um, you just said that we have no one on whom to rely, but isn't that a prophecy, that that's actually what we say when... And then Mashiach comes when we all say that. But does yes. everyone have to say that? Like the whole world? Well, I don't know what you mean by prophecy, but uh, in the end, uh, this is what happens. You know, you remind me because it says that, you know, right now we are fooled. We are fooled. You know why? Because for 6,000 years, right, there has always been Gedolim. There has been tremendous people, the others, to Moshe, Rabbeinu, Aaron, Akoyen, Yitumat Shmuel Hanovi, Yitumat thousands and thousands of Gedolim that have lived with us throughout Jewish history, right? So in a certain sense, we are fooled because they do nothing. We don't realize that. It's like the Rebbe says, you know, I give life. I kill. And from my hand there's no rescue. There is nothing else. But we have been fooled for 6,000 years in the sense that we see that there are Gedolim and Tzadikim and, and Hasid and, and Rebbes and so on that they do pull off miracles. So therefore what happens is 
the Jews begin to rely on these people as if they had koichas, independent of God. But this will all disappear in the 7,000th year after the Mashiach is gone and the world is destroyed. This is after the Messianic era. It says, Vashem Nizgov Levadoi Bayomahu. In the 7,000th year, all the intermediaries, everything disappears. Not that the people disappear, but we realize that there is no Ein Koyach Acher. There is no force, nothing. You see? So in that sense, that's an important idea. Everybody functions, operates, in terms of what God allows them to do. But, so we get fooled. Well, look like I hear, I went to the Rebbe, and the, and the Rebbe performed the this, you know, and so on. No. And Rabbi Chaim said that. Uh, you know, they once asked him, they once asked him, you know, because uh, I think the Gaboim saw that somebody came to him and he gave him this advice. Then somebody else came to him with the exact same problem, whatever it was, Shidduch, Rufur, and he, he told him something else. Uh, so the person asked, Why do you, what's the difference? Why don't you give the same remedy to two different people? So Rav Chaim said something which is very important. He says, I don't tell them what I think. I tell them what I realize. Because he understood that all of a sudden, whatever thought he has is put there by the Ramadan. That was the level of Ruach HaKodesh. So he saw himself as a conduit, you see, from God to Jews. That's how he saw himself. It wasn't his own, you know, creativity or what he thinks. No, he waited for an answer from the Rabboni Shalom himself. Because it is only the Rabboni Shalom that does anything, period. And that is a very important idea which we will become completely aware of in the 7,000th year. Because even in the Messianic era, we'll be fooled. Because all of a sudden you have Moshe Rabbeinu, you have Tchir Samesim, means everybody gets up from the dead. All great people. So obviously, you know, uh, there's going to be tremendous things going on. And again, we will, it's, it's, it's easy to be fooled that these people themselves have powers independent of God. And the truth is, all of that will be erased and transparent in the 7,000th year. That's when we realize, there is nothing that, has, that can do anything. Only God has the ability and the potency to do anything. Anything else? So I have a question. So, do you think, um, like, anything happened to the Mashiach Ben Yosef uh, <coughs> when Rav Chaim Knesset passed away? Like, do you think there was a transfer of something, like, anything like that? Does he know he's well, well, what I what I believe is, like I said, his demise accelerated enormously the profit, the process, I should say. Because, like I said, it did two things. It was a tremendous atonement for the Jewish people that allowed them to go over the threshold, you see, where the window is at the lowest point of all. 
And the second thing, right, besides that, besides the kapora, it brought the window down to the lowest level, which means that somebody like him will no longer appear. And therefore, we are at the level, really, uh, of the window at the lowest level, and hopefully that means that the Mashiach is imminent. That's what I believe happened. When are we going to see it? We don't know. But it has to be very shortly. All signs, and I've gone over this so many different times, point to the imminent arrival of the Mashiach, Ben Yosef, and to the end of the Golos. And we are watching that now as the world collapses over its own depravity and its own insanity. You see? <clears throat> that is what's in, happening. In, Rabbi? Yes. In, in, in some ways, didn't it, it feels like Hashem um, paved the way for Mashiach Ben Yosef to arrive because now that there's no Posek and there's no one that all the Jews rely on, there's no, we don't have anyone. Yes, so right. It's, it's, it's like a red carpet that all the Jews are, when Mashiach does come, will all be open arms for, to him. Oh, yeah. That's also that's a good point. Yeah. That's also a good point. Yes. Because there's nobody else that you can substitute. So, obviously, that will enormously increase the desire for the Mashiach. Because there's nobody else. We... You know, people uh, felt that Reb Chaim was a, uh, he was a protector, but he's gone, you see. So now everybody will certainly realize that, well, it's really, you need the Mashiach, you need the uh, Messianic era, you need the Beis Hamikdash. That's the only way we can survive, you know. Right. So, so if we look at Pesach, the lockdown for 2020, right? And then 2021 was like a very evil world. It was, there was like, remember all the rioting and Myanmar yeah, and, and then yeah. all the rockets that came into Israel? Yes. And it was almost like 2021 was like, okay, 2020 was like the, when we were in Egypt, when, when they were on lockdown, when they... We're told, don't, you can't come out of the house for, um, for Pesach. It was like Egypt for 2020. And then Well, yeah, okay, you're going back to, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right, and but then 2021 was like the decree, kind of like in Persia, when the world got so evil for us here, it was like when everyone turned on the Jews in Persia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, so what's I, you know, trajectory? I, I, well, like, like I say, you know, I, I believe that he, with his demise, he has enormously accelerated the windows, because that, in the end, but is really that, what has to happen. Does that mean that, like, for meaning, like, it means that the Mashiach is right around the corner, and what's good? Do you think what's it's going to be a good time up Nisan. until Pesach? Well, Shabbos is Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So we are heading into the time of the redemption. Maybe. Maybe this Nisan is going to begin literally, you know, the, the Gula, slowly, but it'll be, uh, like I say, it'll begin. 
It'll be the turnaround. And that's what we're waiting for, the turnaround itself. You see? Okay. Does Rabbi Chaim, now that he's in Bezat Hashem and Shamaim, and he was a part of our generation, does he have more strength and power to pray for us? Does he have what? More, more, more power to pray for us. And yes, like he does. Yes, because he, a great deal of the generation of what, what happens here is a result of his influence. So that binds him to us. So because of that Kesha, that bind, he has a tremendous uh, ability to help us. You know, he, it's, not, it's not like he's going to just leave us in the dark. No. Because he is bound up in this generation to us. You know, he's responsible for a tremendous amount of ruchnia spirituality. So therefore, that itself allows him to pray for us. It's like a parent praying for a child. It's their kid. So there's no question that Rab Chaim has a tremendous ability, therefore, to be what's called a Menet Yosha, to really be a tremendous advocate for us, which I'm sure he's doing. So a soul can do that even if it's within its, let's say, 30 days or first year of passing? Well, basically, within the year of its passing, I mean, it's, a tzaddik is different, but the neshama has to be concerned with its own future first. Right. So it goes through its own judgment first, you know, in terms of what it did and what its merits are and so on. You know, and then it could be concerned with others. But I'm sure by Rab Chaim, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, he, he's such an extraordinary person. I'm sure he's going to overcome that in the Shiva. Sure. But even Rab Chaim is judged. Everybody's judged. Nobody escapes that. Uh, but Rab Chaim, you know, just an awesome, uh, his merits are so awesome, you know. So I'm sure it can happen much earlier. You know what I mean? Okay. Think about what I said. Uh, a lot of important, a lot of important ideas, and like I said, it's a completely different perspective of what's going on.